Welcome to this podcast on sustainable finance by Treasury Today and Standard Chartered. I'm Rebecca Brace and today I'm going to be talking to two experts from Standard Chartered, Robert Newell and Simon Derrick. The first two episodes in this series of podcasts looked at digital transformation and at the impact of the pandemic on hedging policies and M&A. Today's episode will focus on sustainable finance, what it means for Treasury activities, and what sort of workload and risks Treasurers need to be aware of. We'll also discuss how progress in this area compares across different markets. I'm joined now by Standard Chartered's Robert Newell, Managing Director, Global Corporates Europe, and Simon Derrick, Head of Financing Solutions Europe. So hello and welcome to Robert and Simon, and thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Hi there. Thank you very much. Yeah, good to speak to you. So to get the ball rolling, why should corporates be looking at sustainable finance and what problems does it solve? I think that the first thing is that sustainable finance needs to be differentiated from sustainability as a whole. The benefits of more sustainable behaviour are well established across a variety of stakeholders, be that customers, equity investors, employees or regulators. But sustainable finance refers specifically to the process of taking environmental, social and governance considerations into account when making investment decisions in the financial sector, which in turn leads to more long-term investments and sustainable economic activities and projects. On the funding side, there are two very distinct types of sustainable finance, use of proceeds and sustainability-linked products that incentivize improvements in ESG performance. On the use of proceeds side, basically green, social and sustainable loans and bonds, sustainable finance structures give investors comfort that the funds will be used appropriately and so can potentially generate cheaper financing because they can access money from investors that want to finance ESG projects, as well as those investors that are indifferent to the use of proceeds. If cheaper funding can be put to work, then we can potentially solve problems quicker. But there are also massive benefits available in products like trade finance, which can help ensure sustainable sourcing and move to net zero, and carbon trading, which can improve efficiency in allocating a declining carbon budget. It is estimated that new financing requirements to keep global warming at an increase of just 1.5 degrees may be as high as $8 trillion annually, while the UN estimates that the funding gap to reach the sustainable development goals by 2030 is $2.5 trillion a year. We need to really mainstream sustainable investing to achieve anywhere near those kinds of numbers. And and just to add, as Simon mentions, there is an increasing amount of capital being allocated towards sustainable finance, uh, which ultimately should lead to pricing benefits for compliant usages and and conversely a premium for continuing what are considered to be polluting or or non-compliant behaviour. This hopefully should ensure that businesses and governments and their stakeholders, such as banks and investors, act in a more beneficial manner. Um, Another point to mention, perhaps, is that uh, with sustainable finance becoming more noticeable, it also highlights the benefits of sustainability, such as net zero adoption, both financially and for for wider society. Um, This can be important for all stakeholders. I'm sure you will have heard the versions of the phrase, uh, doing better for the environment and society means doing better for business. But use of sustainable finance helps businesses underscore the various commitments they're making to ESG, uh, in that they're embedding ESG into their capital structures not only because it's the right thing to do, but also because it shows the deeper immersion, if you like, of of ESG into the DNA of a company, uh, rather than be a separate department. Um, In in turn, this this helps demonstrate their ESG commitment to investors and lenders, 
who are also increasingly pursuing sustainable assets as part of their own strategies. Lovely. Thank you very much. Robert, can you tell us which Treasury activities might be impacted by sustainable finance? Yes, sure. I mean, I think given that sustainability and acting in a sustainable manner is is now at the forefront of most strategies, it follows that sustainable finance impacts across the entire Treasury uh, scope, I think, and Treasury activities. It's hard to think of anything that that wouldn't be influenced within a Treasury uh, treasury function. There are perhaps more immediately well-known areas such as funding uh, with green and ESG-linked loans, uh, which have become mainstream for borrowers across corporate sovereigns and funds, uh, and bond issuance. However, as mentioned earlier, there are broadly two main areas where sustainability financing is evolving, uh, and this and this is being applied more widely across the treasury space. For example, ESG-linked derivatives and supply chain financing largely follow similar principles of working on a framework of sustainability-linked targets, whereby there are real benefits for positive action um, and costs for failing to act. Wider still from that, there are other examples such as green deposits, uh, both money market fund style and now Castor type accounts, which we've recently launched, um, as well as sustainable repos to ensure that excess liquidity is deployed in a sustainable manner by the banks. These are typically use of proceeds based. Um, As standard chartered, we continue to develop products that will help with the evolution of treasury in in ESG. We have executed sustainable repo trades, um, as I mentioned recently, and, and, and we're one of the first banks with sustainable deposit accounts. Our own such sustainable deposit structures are used to fund SDG compliant businesses, Uh, which are aligned with our green and sustainable product framework that's been given a second party opinion by Sustainalytics. Um, In terms of bond issuance um, and and, and the sort of growth in that area, unsurprisingly, sustainable bonds in all formats had another record year in 2021 with estimates of issuance of over $800 billion. Um, And in 2022, we're expecting that to top $1 trillion. In supply chains, uh, supply chain finance, supply chains clearly are areas that can benefit from sustainable finance, uh, with scope three emissions being a key factor on the road to net zero. We expect to see greater focus in this area going forward and further development of products to help address some of the challenges of improving sustainability and sourcing. For example, we're already working with a fintech in Asia to provide deep tier financing within supply chains. In addition to activities that affect all treasuries, Uh, Certain industries and subsectors could be impacted to an even greater extent. Um, Carbon intensive industries should benefit from the establishment of carbon markets and carbon trading. Carbon trading will be key, I think, to to hitting net zero targets going forward. Uh, And likewise, heavy energy users are investing their own sustainable energy production, which can impact capital structures clearly and, and, and risk management policies with a totally new asset class that may previously have been outsourced, but now considered too important to rely on third party provision. So how much of an additional workload should companies expect when embracing sustainable finance and what sort of risks do they need to think about? In terms of workload, it depends on the product being considered and also the nature of the business that the company is uh, pursuing sustainable financing for. Again, there's a difference here between use of proceeds and sustainability links. On the funding side, use of proceeds deals require strict monitoring that the proceeds will be applied for the intended purpose. And on the bond side, they will require additional work to obtain a second party opinion and a borrower sustainability framework. But these can be relatively straightforward processes. And at SCB, we work closely with our clients on those processes to help reduce the workload. For sustainability link deals, there is a more holistic borrower involvement as the structure needs to tie into the overall borrower sustainability strategy and there will be targets to be set across a range of sustainability KPIs. 
Those KPIs need to be material for the business and the target set, which are called sustainability performance targets or SBTs, will need to be ambitious and potentially aligned uh, with external benchmarks like the science-based targets initiative. In addition, the borrower will need performance against those SPTs to be externally verified on at least an annual basis for a loan facility. So while sustainability linked can be more universally applicable, there is probably more work involved and a requirement for coordination across teams within the borough, from treasury to sustainability teams to investor relations. To go to the second part of your question about risk, the most obvious risk is greenwashing. Typically on use of proceeds financings, this is criticism from NGOs, investors or customers that the project being financed should not be eligible or risks that the deal is not structured well so that some funding can be used for non-green purposes. There have been a lot of efforts to tighten standards with documents like the Green Loan Principles from the LMA and ICMA's Green Bond Principles, but there is still room for increased transparency and equalisation of standards. On the sustainability linked products, Greenwashing is still the main concern, although the product in itself does not imply a sustainable use of proceeds for the funding, but the KPIs that are used still need to be aligned with an overall ESG strategy that the client is pursuing. The principal issue for sustainability linked products are that the incentives are not tied to the most materialist issues for the borrower and that the targets that have been set are not ambitious enough to encourage real change. This is still an evolving market and there is still, uh, there's a lot of debate around how best to ensure that targets are ambitious, not least because there's an asymmetry of information on what is possible and how difficult to achieve between the borrower and the lender. And if I may just add, I mean, going back to Simon's earlier points, uh, one, one thing to point out, I mean, it's pretty obvious, I suppose, but for use of proceeds, monitoring and sustainability linked uh, for both of them, once a framework has been established, then in theory, it should be easier to repeat the process with, with further issuance, for example, or to extend into other uh, financial product areas. Uh, though there's a whole separate point on the continuing additional reporting, clearly. Um, we've observed that there's necessarily a high degree of intergroup coordination required for these frameworks, typically working with the sustainability teams. One area that can prove challenging within these, the, the frameworks can be to set interim targets for financing that may fall due sooner than the, the group's existing ESG targets, for example. Often these targets are set to be deliberately challenging to hit a certain date, perhaps 10 years away. Um, so, so trying to set interim steps in the meantime can be quite difficult to achieve, um, particularly given that the, the, the original ask in the, when it was set in the first place was deliberately designed to be quite stretching. Some industries where we've seen consensus emerge, just to add to, to Simon's earlier point, over the past few years on what metrics uh, to monitor and report, which, which makes it easier. Um, for instance, commercial real estate, we often see sustainability-linked loans with KPIs on scope one and two emissions, energy efficiency and building ratings. Um, in shipping, we, we've seen Poseidon principles appear as a, as a guiding light. Uh, and the SBTI, the, the Science-Based Targets Initiative that Simon mentioned, is, is considered the gold standard, I think, for several sectors. This obviously makes it easier to structure and monitor facilities. And then finally, I think another thing to consider is, is the direction of travel. Um, what, what may look like additional workload today on the framework, targets, reporting, verification, monitoring, it, it may well be the norm for most large organisations in the future. Wonderful. Okay, so Simon, in terms of products and developments, how much variation are you seeing across different markets? The recent massive growth in the sustainable loan market has been on the back of sustainability linked loans. This was initially a European phenomenon, but during 2021, we saw that growth spread into the US market. 
Between those two regions, we have seen a bit more of a focus on social KPIs in the US market and environmental in the European market. But you see uh, those KPIs being used across both regions and it's really just a, a weighting and focus issue. Across the rest of the world, SLL activity is a bit more limited, partly because ESG targets are not already set up at a corporate level for many of the borrowers, which enables them to be rolled out easily across European and US borrowers at a corporate level financing. In the emerging markets, we do see a higher proportion of use of proceeds financings, particularly for specific infrastructure or green buildings, rather than general corporate purpose sustainability linked facilities. However, financing sustainable assets in the emerging markets can have far more impact than in developed markets. For example, a solar project in India will help avoid more than seven times the CO2 from a similar sized project in France, given the current sources of power on those countries' grids. And this is a key part of the role that Standard Chartered can play. From a product and themes perspective, we expect to see rapid development and focus on carbon trading markets, and beyond climate, I expect there to be more sustainable finance products and focus devoted to the biodiversity crisis, as well as increasing circularity. And one more question for Robert. Can you tell me about Standard Chartered's approach to sustainable finance and what differentiates you? Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously something which is high on, on all banks' agendas, but um, our vision at Standard Chartered is to be the world's most sustainable and responsible bank. As a European bank with the majority of our business in the emerging markets, we can play a major role in taking ideas and funding between East and West. At the moment, funding is not flowing to the countries at the greatest risk from climate change, but which have the biggest opportunity to jump to low carbon technology. Less than 60% of the financing needed to achieve the SDGs in low and middle income countries is being met. In Africa, um, we estimate this is as low as 10%. Standard Chartered is focused on redressing that. Um, of our 9 billion of verified sustainable financing, 70% is in emerging and developing countries. Uh, we've also been keen to maintain an innovative approach. Um, this has been a hallmark of ours for 160 years, and, and we're determined to use our expertise to direct capital to where it's needed most. We're happy to be flexible uh, and work on new solutions to meet specific problems, and then once rolled out to replicate these solutions for the benefit of our markets. As we believe in a just transition, uh, which means a transition in which developing markets meet their climate objectives whilst they continue to grow and prosper, so we put in place a, a transition finance framework and we're in the process of deploying a transition acceleration team to help our clients in emerging markets with their own transition journeys. We've also committed a, a plan to mobilise $300 billion in green and transition financing by 2030 as part of our own ambitions. So whilst COP26 may not have achieved what many of us were hoping for, uh, COP27 and COP28 will pivot towards the emerging markets with being hosted in Egypt and the UAE respectively. And we'll continue to aim to play a major role in, in bridging finance and ideas around our markets. Robert and Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's been great speaking to you today. Thank you. Good to speak to you today. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Good to speak to you too. Thanks to Robert Newell and Simon Derrick at Standard Chartered for sharing their insights into sustainable finance, how the market is developing and what treasurers need to be aware of. Thank you for listening to this podcast, brought to you by Treasury Today and Standard Chartered. Don't forget to subscribe so you can keep an eye out for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.